Well, good morning. All right, you guys sound good? Um, we are continuing our series called How to Read the Bible. Today is How to Read the Bible Part 5, which means there have been four other ones that came before this. Four weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about translation and how we got the Bible from the um, ancient languages to the language that we have it in, our English Bibles that we buy now. The next week after that, we talked about interpretation. Once we have these English words, how are we to read them and understand them? The next week, we talked about the Old Testament, and then last week, which would be the fourth week of the series, we talked about the New Testament. And so today is part five, next week is part six, and if the Lord permits, those will be the final two weeks of this series. And what I would like to do for these final two weeks is give you two final ideas about the Bible, and I want to share them with you. So what I'm going to do is, one this week, one next week, my goal for today, and I'm just going to tell you it right up at the front. I don't always do this, but today I'm going to just tell you the point of the sermon right at the very beginning, okay? My goal today is to teach you that Jesus Christ validated the Old Testament, that Jesus predicted the New Testament, and what that means for us. If Jesus really died and rose again, and he said what the Gospels report him to have said, then we can trust the Old Testament and the New Testament and understand it as authoritative, so that's, that's my sermon in just a few sentences. And before I get into it, I wanted to say something that, I don't know, I guess this is an attempt to not plagiarize. Um, I have learned a lot of the things that I'm going to share with you today from multiple people over the past 20 years. And so much so that I would, I don't know, I would estimate maybe 96% of this sermon is not original to me. Like these are ideas that I have learned over time when, when we start talking about the resurrection and why we ought to believe in the resurrection and the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. A lot of these concepts and a lot of the ideas that I'm going to share with you, they're just, they're not original to me. I learned them from people like N.T. Wright and Tim Keller and John Piper and Andy Stanley and Josh McDowell. And so I just wanted to let you know whether it's their blogs or their sermons or books of theirs or whatever it may be, um, I learned a lot of this stuff from other places. And so... Um, I just want you to know that because as I say these words, there are going to be times in my mind where, I, where I'm going to say something and I'm going to think to myself like, oh, Andy Stanley's the first person I ever heard say that. Or, oh, I remember reading that in a book by Tim Keller. But I'm not going to say that this whole sermon. Like, I'm not going to treat this sermon like a research paper and footnote and like tell you after every single sentence everything that I learned from someone else. I just think it would be really cumbersome and nobody wants to listen to that. So I'm just going to confess right at the beginning that most of the stuff I'm going to say today are all things I've learned from other people over the past 20 years or so. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump right in. Here's my first point. Jesus validated the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, referred to the Old Testament scriptures like they were the word of God and the people were supposed to obey them and believe in them. I want to show you that in the Bible. I want to show it to you in Matthew chapter 22. Now, Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to start reading verse 23 and go to verse 32. And it's a story and my point this morning isn't really to teach you the story. There's something in the story that I want to point out. But I think the best way to do it is, I guess, just to tell you the story and then point it out. But this is what happened. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 23, it says, The same day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. So those are the characters that are in this story. Jesus is there. The Sadducees are there. The Sadducees are a religious sect, and they are coming to Jesus to question him. And there's a little bit more information in that first verse, and it is not irrelevant information. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. For those of you who were here last week, remember how we talked about the new heaven and new earth? 
Oh, wow. First service remembered it. That's a, it's a shame. <laughs> First service was like, well, yeah, we were with you. You guys were like, I don't know. What? Okay, so do you remember when we talked about new heaven and new earth? Yeah. Okay, good. So um, it was like right at this point of the screen. Do you remember that, right? So um, new heavens and new earth. And one, another word for that could be the resurrection. That, or you could say the day that Jesus comes and makes all things new. There's more than one way to say it. But um, Revelation talks about God making all things new. The new heaven and new earth are described. And sometimes the re- it's called the resurrection. And in fact, I think I used that word last week where I said that if you were to die before Jesus returns and makes all things new, he resurrects his people to live with him forever. So that's the thing the Sadducees do not believe in, okay? Who say there is no resurrection. That's not going to happen where people who are dead come back to life and live with God forever. They do not believe that. So they came up to him, and I'm, I'm assuming that they must have figured out that Jesus did believe that. So now they are questioning him. Teacher, that's their word for Jesus. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So the Sadducees are now quoting from or paraphrasing from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And they're saying, hey, Moses said there was this, there was this law that what you're supposed to do, and this was specifically a, um, an ancient Israelite uh, inheritance law is what I think it was, that there was this, the promised land that was given. The land was then cut up into pieces that went to different tribes and different families. And so it was very important that each generation take on the next um, the, the, the family farm, like the family farm needed to pass from the next generation to the next generation. And so the way that this um, worked is that a man and a woman would get together and they would get married. And then the, I think it was usually the firstborn son that would receive the inheritance. So if there was a case where there's a woman that marries a man and then that man dies and there's no children to inherit the land, the way that it was supposed to work is that the brother would come along and provide a service for her, right? That he would marry her and make it to where she could have children who would then keep the land in the family name. So they're referring to a practice in Deuteronomy. You might say, ooh, especially if you think about your brother-in-law, you might go like, oh, I don't like that. And so I think that's fine if you don't like it. Um, As best as I can tell, this is a law that was specifically for the government in Israel and for the people that were in Israel in the promised land at the time. So if you don't like your brother-in-law, you don't have to be, you know, should I become a Christian? So anyway, so you don't have to worry, I don't think. But this this is the command from Deuteronomy. That's what they're referring to. And the reason they quote it is because of what they're about to say. Because they want, to, they want to make fun of the resurrection. So they say, now, there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second also, and the third, and so to all seven. They all keep dropping dead. Then last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. Now, I've always interpreted this to be like a hypothetical situation, that no woman is this unlucky, that all of her husbands just keep constantly dying. Or maybe it's the brothers that are unlucky. I don't know who's unlucky here. But with all these deaths, I always thought this was kind of a made-up hypothetical example, although the way they write it, maybe not. Maybe, maybe this is a real thing that happened. I don't know. But either way, they tell this story about this woman, dead husband, dead husband, dead husband, dead husband. And the whole point of bringing it up is to say, this resurrection idea is really silly, Jesus. If there really is a bring back to everybody to life and they live with God forever, if that were true, there's going to be people there who have multiple spouses. There are going to be people who are married to multiple people at the same time forever. That's not even, right? Isn't that silly, Jesus? We know that's not true. And so Jesus responds to what they say. This is verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are deceived because you don't know the what? The scriptures. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus says, you have the wrong answer here. You believe falsehood, right? You don't know what's right in this case. You are deceived, and it's because you don't know the scriptures. He uses this word. Jesus obviously believed that there was a collection of writings somewhere that these people should have read. There was a collection of documents somewhere that were authoritative, that if you read them and if you believed them and you understood them correctly, you would know the truth. And these people do not know the truth because, why? Because they have not. They don't know the scriptures. So obviously Jesus believed in some sort of set of, some sort of set of writings that are like, this is what you should have known by now. So what is that? I think that he's referring to what we now call the Old Testament. I mean, he quotes from at least part of it um, in just a second. So he says, you are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Then he answers the specific situation they bring up about this lady. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he's answering the, the lady question first with basically, she's not going to have seven husbands in, in the resurrection. When she lives with God forever, she will not have seven husbands, okay? Then, after answering the specific question about the lady, he then goes for like the, 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 the issue that's underneath the issue, right? The real thing that they're asking about, which is the resurrection, how could there be a resurrection? And so he addresses that. So she's not going to have seven husbands and, verse 31, now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you, what's the word? Read. Haven't you read what was spoken to you by who? God. Jesus thought there were words that were written down and they were God's words. God had some written down words somewhere, and he's saying, haven't you read God's words? Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? And then he quotes, um, yeah, give me the quote. He quotes from, from Exodus, this is verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus says, have you not read what was, what was written by God? Then he quotes from Exodus, I think this is Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus' own words here, he is not the God of the dead but of the living. So what is the, if I was going to tell you what this story is about, I think the, story, the point of this, this story here is that as Jesus is responding to the Sadducees, he's basically saying, you could, have told, you, could have, you could have seen by the way that the Old Testament was written, you could have seen by the way God talked about himself in the book of Exodus, the answer to this, God is the present tense God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three guys who were long dead by the time Exodus came along. So he doesn't say, I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back when they were alive, but they no longer exist, right? No, I am their God now. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob keep existing. When they died, they didn't stop existing. There is a resurrection. There is a spiritual life that goes on. You could have figured that out from the way God talked about himself in the book of Exodus. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here, but that's not my point in the sermon. My point in the sermon, I just want to point out to you, is verse 31. As he's talking to them, he says, you should have read what was spoken to you by God. There are words of God that you could have read to know this. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament was God's word and authoritative. At the very least, we know he believed Exodus was that way because he quotes Exodus that way. He does more than that, though. Let's look at Mark chapter 12. Now, I'm not going to read this one in the whole story. I'm just going to read one verse. But the, this is another conversation that Jesus is having with some people, and he's talking with them about how, the, how could the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? This is a, a kind of a category for them that they didn't understand back at the time. Um, he says, how could the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? And then he goes on to say that the, the Messiah is David's Lord. 
So he's talking to them and going, how is this possible? How can the Messiah be David's son below him and, and his Lord above him? Okay, that's, the, that's the question that he's having. And, and, as, and as he's dealing with that, this is what he says. Could you put Mark 12, 36 up? So as he says, how, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? He then says, David himself says, by the who? Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I till, until I put your enemies under your feet. Now this right here, after the little colon here, this is a quote from the book of Psalms. I think it's Psalm 68. Jesus quotes from a psalm to make a point. Hey, this is, this is the way the Messiah is. We know it because Psalm says so. And he even credits it. He says, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. So now we, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's probably very easy for us to understand the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah and Jesus could be David's son in the sense that he's his great, 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 great grandson and also be his Lord, that he is the Lord over all things. But I don't think they had a category for that. And so he's trying to talk with them about, oh, the Messiah is actually David's Lord. And the way he does it is by quoting from the Old Testament. And before he quotes from the Old Testament, he specifically credits the author of it to be David and the Holy Spirit. It seems to me Jesus believes in the dual authorship of the Bible, which is something that we believe here at Good News. In fact, I think probably most Christians do. That, that we believe that the Bible was written by human beings, certainly, Moses wrote stuff down, Paul wrote stuff down, David wrote stuff down. Certainly the Bible was written by human beings, but also written by God. That David, that David wrote down words by the Holy Spirit, that humans wrote down words, and humans wrote down the words that God wanted to communicate to us. And so who wrote the Psalms? David and the Holy Spirit. David by the Holy Spirit wrote these words, and that's why we should believe what we believe about the Messiah. That's how Jesus spoke. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as if it was words from God, as if they were words from the Holy Spirit, and they were authoritative for us to believe. Jesus quoted from the book of Genesis in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus quoted from the book of Exodus in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus quoted from the book of Leviticus in Mark chapter 12. Jesus quoted from the book of Numbers in John chapter 3 when he referred to Moses and holding up the snake in the wilderness. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy in Mark chapter 12. Jesus quoted from Daniel in Mark chapter 13. Jesus quoted from Micah in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus quoted from Isaiah in Luke chapter 8 and several other times. Big fan of Isaiah, he was. Um, he quoted from the Psalms in Mark chapter 12. He quoted from Hosea in Matthew chapter 12. He quoted from Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. Not every single book in the Old Testament, but multiple times... Over his ministry, Jesus refers back to the Old Testament like it's God's word, like you're supposed to believe what it says because this is what God has revealed to us. Jesus, while he was on this earth, with his own words, validated the Old Testament. The second point that I want to tell you today is that Jesus also predicted the New Testament. Jesus predicted the New Testament before it was written. For that, I want to show you John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, and the main verses I'm going to read to you are 12 through 15, but we're going to start it up at 7 just to give you some context, which remember earlier in the series, we learned that that's important. Yes. yes thank you. <laughs> okay, so John chapter 16, I'm going to start in verse 7 just to give you some of the words that came before it. Jesus says, nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus here is predicting his departure. Right? He is saying, I am going away. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And you're probably going to think like, oh, it's not a good thing. We don't want Jesus to leave. Right? And he's saying, but it's actually going to be a good thing that I leave because the counselor is going to come. 
He uses this phrase counselor, and I think as this passage goes on and as the Bible goes on, it becomes obvious that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so he says, it is for your benefit that I go away. If I don't go away, the counselor will not come. If I go, I will send him to you. Like, I'm going to go to where he is, heaven, and then from there, I'm going to send him to you. The Holy Spirit's going to be sent to you. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, within that context, he says this. Now, I'm just skipping down to verse 12 here. But as he's talking about this topic of one day the Holy Spirit's going to come, he says in verse 12, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Now, that's interesting. Jesus is there with his disciples. He has been their rabbi. He has been their teacher. He has been their Messiah for, I don't know, two, three, four years at this point. And he, said, and he has obviously said a bunch of things already. There are many words Jesus has spoken to these men, right? There are many sentences, many paragraphs, many truths he has communicated to them. And then at the end of his life, just before he departs, he says, I still have many things to say. There are many more words. There are many more sentences that need to be said, but you're not ready for them. You're not ready for them yet. But when the spirit of truth comes... Okay? And I think spirit of truth is the same as the counselor from earlier in this passage. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. There's a message that this spirit of truth is going to come and he's going to say, he's going to say whatever he hears, whatever he's supposed to say. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me when the Spirit of truth shows up. When the Holy Spirit shows up, He's going to make a big deal about Jesus. He will glorify me because He will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that He takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. He's saying, I have words that I want to tell you. You can't bear them now, so I'm going to leave. The spirit of truth is going to come after I leave, and he is going to give you not just more words, he's going to give you my words. He will take from what is mine and declare it to you, that Jesus' words are going to be declared to his apostles after he's gone by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' words are the same as God's words, right? All that the Father has is mine. So the Father's truth is the same as my truth, which is the same words that are going to be given to the spirit of truth, who is going to come and say it to you later on when you're ready. I think that Jesus was predicting the New Testament. He was saying there are sentences, there are words that are mine, and they're coming later to you from the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles went around talking about Jesus, and they ended up teaching people, this is how you're supposed to behave, this is what Jesus says, this is what happens. They're going around teaching these things. Some of what they're teaching, they're teaching what Jesus told them directly, but we know that some of what they were teaching was what the Holy Spirit told them later on after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Are you following me? that the apostles were people who were commissioned by Jesus to speak on his behalf, like to speak with his authority, to say, this is what Jesus says you're supposed to do. Kind of like an ambassador for a country goes to another country on behalf of their home country, and they speak like with the authority of the home country. They speak on behalf of the home country. And so Jesus has these apostles that he commissioned, that he sent out as his messengers, and they are spreading his truth. And some of the truth is truth that he told them directly, and some of truth is truth that is his that was given to them after he ascended to heaven. Some of these things got written down. 
And we have that collection of documents. I think that what Jesus was predicting here, maybe more than this, but at the very least, he was predicting what we now call the New Testament. I mean, at first it was just verbal. He was just saying, this truth is going to come. And I think at first it was. They just went and said it out loud. But eventually, they started writing things down so that we have the apostles' teaching and their associates' teaching like, in written form. And as these apostles go around speaking these things, and as these things get written down, they start taking them very seriously. And people start going, oh, this is a big one. We need to write a copy of this and make sure these other people have a copy of these same words. And even during the first century, the people who wrote the New Testament were... Um, they were already acting like the words that they were writing were authoritative, that, it's not, that scriptures are not just the Old Testament, but that there are these new words that are also like the words from God for us, for how we should live and how we should know what we know about him, that they spoke with authority and, and occasionally seemed to even refer to the writings as scripture, like even early on in the first century. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul there's one point where Paul says something along the lines of, he says, as the scripture says, and then after he says, as the scripture says, he gives two quotes. One of the quotes is from Deuteronomy. That makes sense. A Jewish guy that thinks Deuteronomy is scripture. But after he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes another thing. It's the, word, the words, the worker is worthy of his wages. And that's a quote from Jesus Christ that the only place I know of that it exists is the book of Luke. So Paul says, the scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he quotes Jesus, perhaps from Luke. And, you, and it seems to me that he's either saying both of these things are scripture, or, or what Jesus said is on par with Deuteronomy, but he seems to be referring to new truth, almost as equal to what they already believed was the scriptural truth, the Old Testament. In the book of 2 Peter, um, toward the end, like last paragraph or two of 2 Peter, um, 2 Peter actually refers to Paul's letters as scripture. Like if they talk about Paul's letters and then say, and the other scriptures, as if Paul's letters are scripture. Um, Paul himself treated his letters like they were author like authoritative. There, there were times you can read through his writings where he would say things like, not I, but the Lord says this. Um, or there's a, there's a section toward the end of the book of Colossians where Jesus, uh, I mean, where Paul says, this letter that I wrote to you, make sure it gets read out loud for everybody in the church. And then once it's read out loud and everybody knows it, then take it to the church at Laodicea and make sure it gets read out loud there so that they hear all this. I don't think Paul thought that he was just simply writing these personal letters filled with his opinions, right? There are times that he's like, no, everybody in the church needs to hear this. They all need to believe this. And then once you got this, send it to the church down the road because they need to read it because it's authoritative there too. And this is all still in the first century. That's how, that's how this is coming together. So Jesus validates the Old Testament he predicts the New Testament. He says there's more truth to come, and then his apostles write things down, and they start getting treated as authoritative early on. And so I guess what I'm trying to say, my point this morning is, we can trust the Bible because Jesus points both backward and forward to the rest of the Bible as the Word of God. You following me so far? Okay, good. Now, all of that, if true rests upon some other beliefs that so far I've just taken for granted. That is true. Jesus said these things. Jesus validated the Old Testament. Jesus predicted the New Testament. He said the Holy Spirit's going to come and reveal more truth. Jesus said all that, but all of that rests upon some other beliefs, like Jesus rose again. He really is the Son of God, and what he says matters. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John correctly, accurately wrote down what he did and what he said. Does that make sense? 
That the first thing is, okay, well, we can trust the Old Testament and then we can trust the New Testament because Jesus said so, but then we have to realize, but that assumes something that I haven't really explained yet. Well, why do we believe it just because Jesus says so? Why are we assuming that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, wrote these words down and that they are correct? And even if they did write down his words and they were correct, why does it matter what Jesus thinks? It matters what Jesus thinks if he came back to life after he died. If not, who cares? If Jesus was a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, and did carpentry stuff, and said a few nice things, like, blessed are the peacemakers, and I believe in the Old Testament, okay? Why would we take his words seriously 2,000 years later? Are there any other carpenters from the first century that you take real seriously? I bet you you can't even name one other one. (laughs) Right? You don't care. People that just lived and then died like anybody else, you don't care what they said. The reason we take Jesus' words seriously is because of what he said about himself, the miracles that he did, he claimed to be teaching on behalf of God, like God showed up here, the Son of God, speaking to us, and he dies on the cross for our sins. How do we know that God the Father accepted God the Son's sacrifice for us? God made it really clear by raising him from the dead. He gave us proof. He validated. He, he vindicated. He made it very clear. How would we know that, 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 Jesus, that God the Father accepted the sacrifice? He certainly accepted the sacrifice. He, he illustrated that in a very dramatic way. He brought Jesus back to life just like Jesus predicted would happen. But did that happen? Did Jesus rise again and do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us reliable accounts of his life? And so I would like to talk with you about that because the rest of the sermon is very helpful and very true if that's true. But is that true? And so I, I'm going to talk with you about that a little bit, but I want you to realize that there is a lot that could be said about those two topics. Okay? The, the fact that Jesus rose again and the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable, there is so much that has been said and could be said about those. There are seminary professors and college professors and and historians and pastors and theologians and Bible teachers who have spent, like they do whole sermon series on just one of those topics, just a whole sermon series on the reliability of the gospel. Or they'll write a whole book just on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did Did Jesus really rise again? And so if you're hoping that we could do like a whole book worth or a whole sermon worth on these topics, I I can't do that today. Like I can't even do a whole sermon on the resurrection or a whole sermon on the reliability of the Gospels because I only have half a sermon left today, right? So what I'm going to try to do is just give you what I got. Like I just want to give you some quick evidences for the reliability of the Gospels and Jesus' resurrection, and then I can point you to some other places. But for now, let me just give you some, some, some quick evidences in the, in the second half of the sermon. The first quick evidence I want to give you is from John Piper. This one I'm going to quote somebody else here. Um, John Piper, I think he was doing a sermon, and I wrote this down. Um, and he's answering this question. The question was, give me in 30 seconds why you're a Christian. Okay, so he's saying, like, if somebody were to say to him, why are you a Christian? Why, why do you believe in Jesus? Just say it in 30 seconds. Just briefly tell me why you should believe in Jesus. And this was his answer. He said, the portrait I see of Jesus Christ in the Gospels is self-authenticating to me. I cannot meet this man and have him speak like nobody else spoke and not believe him. He wins my trust. And if they say, how do you know that person, Jesus, isn't being created by someone else, like the author of the story? And he said, I would, 
I would say then the person that's creating him is just as phenomenal and they win my trust. And if they win my trust, then they're not lying to me. I think what he's trying to say here is, when you read the Jesus of the Gospels, you go, nobody would have made this up. It is self-authenticating. And he's saying that there is no way. He is, he is this phenomenal and this trustworthy, and if someone were to make him up, that person would be phenomenal and trustworthy. But if they were trustworthy, then they wouldn't be lying to me. And I think that is a very decent answer, especially considering the 30-second time limit. I want to give you some more answers than that, though, because I do have more than 30 seconds. I got half a sermon, so it's, so, but, so it's more than 30 seconds, but less than being able to talk about this for a long, long, long time. So let me give you just a few more evidences of the reliability of the Gospels and Jesus rising again. I'm going to put these in, these are my own words, although, like I said, I've learned these from all sorts of sources. So let me start with this. When it comes to the reliability of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus that we talked about last week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are similar enough that you can tell that they are all claiming that the same story happened. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what you'll see. They are all telling the same story. All four of these, these are like four, in some ways, independent accounts, or at least three of them. We'll get to that more about that later. There's these, there's these accounts that these people are saying, this is what we saw. This is what happened. This is what he said. This is the way the story ends. And you can tell it's multiple accounts that all agree with one another. These are, it's not like just one person says, this is what I saw. We've got multiple people saying, this is the story. And then someone else comes along and says, this is the story. And someone else comes along and says, this is the story. And someone else comes along and says, no, this is the thing that happened. And then you look at all of these testimonies and you go, wow, they all agree. They all agree, at least in the broad strokes. They are similar enough that you can tell they're the same story. You do not have like Matthew saying that Jesus died on a cross and Luke saying Jesus was stoned to death. You do not have Mark saying that Jesus came back to life after he died, and then John saying, like, well, no, not really. He just died and stayed dead. Right? They, they're all telling the same story, and so they're all similar enough that you can tell this is multiple attestations of the same story, and yet <laughs> they are all different enough from one another that it would be hard to accuse them of collusion. Be hard to accuse, it'd be hard to imagine that there was a day where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all got in a room together and went, okay, here's the deal. Let's make up a lie. And we, we're, we're like, who's going to believe if just one of us says it? But let's all agree. Okay, we'll all say that this happened. But if we're all making up lies, we might accidentally make up different lies, and then they'll catch us. So let's all get together and at the same time make sure that our stories match. That's not the way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written. Their, their stories don't match perfectly. You, you, there, there's no way they all got in a room at the same time and decided this is what we're going to write. Um, in fact, there's, different, there's enough differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the differences actually bother people. The different, like people call them contradictions. And they say there's all these issues because this person tells the story in a different way than this one. They'll go, Matthew says that along the side of the road there were two blind men and Mark says there was one blind man. How can we possibly know what happened? These stories don't even match up, right? And I don't know the answer to all of those, every single one of those every time. Although, I mean, I, in that particular case, I can remember one time hearing a preacher say, if there were two blind men on the side of the road... There was one blind man on the side of the road, right? I mean, some of these aren't even necessarily contradictions, but they are different stories told from different perspectives. And you can tell that they didn't all get together and do it together. Now, I do think there's a little bit of dependence that goes on here. For instance, I think Luke um, had the book of Mark when he wrote Luke. That's my opinion. Can't prove it. 
But it seems to me that Luke quotes word for word from the book of Mark many times. And so I think that when Luke says he had multiple sources when he wrote his gospel, I think the, the gospel of Mark was probably one of them. And so Luke quotes from Mark, but Luke includes a bunch of stuff that Mark didn't include. And Matthew seems to quote from Mark as well, but Matthew includes a bunch of stuff that Mark didn't include. And I think Matthew includes things that Luke didn't include. And then John is way different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like very different. John seems to be written from the point of view of someone who never read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if he did, then he did not feel any responsibility to try to make his story match and fit with theirs. Because it's quite a bit different. Different characters in it, different emphasis, totally different way of writing a biography about Jesus. And yet, all of the big things all match. That Jesus like, ministered alongside of and with uh, John the Baptist at the beginning, and the people that are in the story are the same, like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and the disciples all have the same names, like Peter and Andrew and what have you. And they all, they all involve miracles, they all involve Jesus' teaching, they all involve the, the big thing at the end, he dies on the cross for sins, he rises again. Even the ones that are very different from one another all have the main things matching. I think um, John even talks about walking on water and... Um, multiplication of, I think, feeding the 5,000. I think that's, those are a couple of the stories that are in all four of the Gospels. And so I'm just saying there are these multiple accounts about the life of Jesus, different enough that it doesn't seem like they all got together and made up the story together, but similar enough that you'd go, wow, multiple people said this happened. Then going from there, and I think this is even more important, Jesus rose again. Jesus rose again, and so what he has to say matters. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quote Jesus correctly, but he didn't rise again, what does it matter what he said? If the, like I said, if there was a carpenter that said, love your neighbor, and I believe in the Old Testament, I mean, there's probably plenty of Jewish carpenters in the first century that thought you ought to love your neighbor, and they believed in the Old Testament. But if Jesus rose again, that is an absolute game changer. And so... Um, I don't have time this morning to do like a whole sermon-length treatment of like, these are the reasons that you ought to believe that Jesus rose again. However, I have done that here before, so I will recommend it to you if you're interested in that. If you go onto our church's website and you go to the series called The Most Important Things That Ever Happened, okay, if you go to The Most Important Things That Ever Happened, part two, I talked about the resurrection and gave like 30 or 40 minutes of reasons as to why you ought to believe in the resurrection. I do not have time to re-say all that today, so for this sermon, for the purposes of just this one sermon, I'm just going to give you one reason to believe in the resurrection, and I'm just going to pick my favorite, okay? My one favorite reason to believe in the resurrection is that 2,000 years ago, in the Roman Empire, in the first century, history changed. A bunch of things happened that, that had to have had a cause. Like there were a bunch of effects, there were a bunch of things that happened, and you understand that things that happen have to have a cause for why they happen, right? Something happened in the first century that caused a bunch of things. History took a very interesting turn 2,000 years ago. You have this religion called Christianity that just sort of appears out of nowhere. And you have the, the birth of the Christian church, and it sort of just appears on the historical timeline just all in one generation, and all of these people that are going around the Roman Empire and they're telling people about Jesus and they're saying that Jesus is Lord and they're saying that he rose again and they even believe they're going to rise again and in fact their belief that they rose again I think gave them courage that they were willing to go around and tell people this in an empire where they were getting killed for it. And this happened in history. Like sometimes you can watch the History Channel or just read history books and you see, like remember when Nero was the Caesar and Nero would persecute Christians 
You've seen stories of like Christians being thrown to lions, or I think Nero, um, like he lit his garden at night with Christians, like living, like Christians that were alive set on fire for him to be able to see in his garden at night. Like there was this intense persecution of this, this new, I think superstition is the word Tacitus uses to describe it, this new religion forms, and there's all this persecution, and there's all this bravery that will go ahead and kill us because our Savior rose again from the grave. And the question is, like, what caused all that? Like, what happened in the second half of the first century, in the second century, in the third century? Like, as you see things happening, you go, well, if Jesus rose again from the grave, it makes sense that those next things happened. But if he didn't, why did that stuff happen? What caused it? Sometimes I like to phrase it this way. What other, if Jesus did not rise again from the grave, what other thing happened in the first century that caused all that? If all the other dominoes fell, why not the first one? And so the truth is, the resurrection happened. I mean, there were p- people who believed certain things suddenly changed what they believed. There were Jewish believers that had these certain beliefs about the Old Testament and then just changed their mind. In many cases, in one generation, whether it has to do with Sabbath or whether it has to do with um, what they believe about the resurrection or what they believe about the Messiah, like there were all these beliefs and then suddenly there were these, all these new beliefs that like happened in such a way that if the resurrection happened, you'd go, well, that makes sense, but if it didn't, what in the world caused all that? And so did the resurrection happen? I believe the answer is yes, it did. Historically, it did. And here's the thing, but if that's true, And now I'm going to circle back around to the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If Jesus rose again, would God the Father cause that to happen, but not preserve the record of it happening? Would God try to communicate to humanity something special about Jesus in such a way that it happened in a supernatural way, but would he go to all the trouble to do that and not preserve the record of it happening? or not preserve Jesus' words? Would he send the Son of God among us, raise him from the dead, but not accurately preserve his words so that we would know what he said and what he taught? That seems unbelievable to me. That if the resurrection happened, then the rest of it just goes with it. And also the Spirit of God comes into our life and leads us to believe this. Like I think most of the people that are in this room, that if you really believe in Jesus, it's very well, it's, probably, it's because the Spirit of God leads you into truth. But if all that's true, if, if we really have the words of God, if Jesus really rose again, then the stuff I said at the beginning of the sermon is really important. If Jesus rose again and Jesus spoke the way he did, that should point us in the direction of trusting the rest of the Bible. If, we, if Jesus is who he said he is, and he said the things he said, then we should trust the Old and New Testament as well in addition to his words because Jesus, when you read the, like the, the, the things that he said, Jesus believed in authoritative words other than his own words. He pointed backwards to words that came before him and quoted like they were from God. He pointed forward and said, words of God are still going to come. In fact, this is the last night I had dinner with somebody and they asked me what the sermon was going to be about and this is what I said. I said, we can believe the whole Bible because Jesus said so. That's my sermon in a sentence. And I think that's important. I think that's important for you as you read the Bible to know, well, how trustworthy is it? And, and how, am I really supposed to like do the stuff that it says? Am I really supposed to trust this God? How do I read the Bible? Where does this stuff come from? 
Especially if someone were ever to say to you things like, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. Don't worry about the Old Testament. Like, that's like, you know, we ignore that half because it's old and it's weird and God seems so aggressive. And, you know, so we just, we don't do the Old Testament, right? We're New Testament people. The Old Testament's the Word of God. Jesus thought it was the Word of God. Now, that does not mean that we can't acknowledge that there are some things in the Old Testament that don't apply to us specifically. Yes, there are things that are specific Israelite civil laws for how they handle things. The brother-in-law thing that I quoted earlier is a good example of that, right? I didn't quote it. Sadducees brought it up. I didn't even care about that issue. (laughs) There are specific things that they did in in their governmental laws that don't apply to us in the United States in 2020. I get that. And there are things that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and no longer need to be done, right? We don't need to sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of sins because the lamb of God has come and taken away the sins of the world. So yes, there are things in the Old Testament that don't directly apply to us anymore. But saying that is completely different than saying the Old Testament is not God's word. We ignore it. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. And we should also be this, we should treat the New Testament the same way. And I think there are times when people do this with the New Testament. Maybe you've had a conversation like this where someone has said, well, maybe, maybe you were the person that said it, or I don't know, somebody said, hey, um, the Bible says th- this, we need to believe this, or this is the way we're supposed to behave, because the Bible says, and then someone goes, where's the Bible say that? And they say, oh, it says it in Romans, and then the person says back, oh, that's Paul, like, that, Romans, <laughs> like, that's the Apostle Paul, like, it's not like Jesus said that, Right? Like, I don't understand why you're taking that so seriously. Like, so Paul, so, so Paul gave his opinions on some things. What do we care about? Like, it's not like Jesus addressed that. You could do the same thing with Peter, right? You look at 1 Peter, there's some stuff that Peter says in 1 Peter about marriage that's pretty hardcore, and you could look at it and go, huh. And then I think some people go, well, why does it matter what Peter thought? Jesus didn't say that precise thing, right? That was just Peter that said that later. And so I think it'd be, it'd be kind of easy for some people to, to really whittle their Bibles down to something very small, right? And so the name of this sermon is, The Red Letters Lead to Black Letters. And if you don't know what I'm referring to by red letters, I'm just letting you know of a common Bible publishing practice, um, and I think it's fairly recent, where people publish Bibles, when publishers print out these Bibles, they write, the, they write black letters on white paper, like all books, and then, when you get to the words of Jesus, Jesus' words are written in red. And I have no problem with that. My Bible is a red-letter Bible. I like it. It's actually very convenient to be able to tell the difference between Jesus' words and other people's words. Love the red letters. Okay? So if you buy a Bible with red letters, good on you. However, the purpose of the red letters is not for us to say, that's God's word, and the, all the black letters don't matter. Those are the words for us to downplay or ignore. No, because if you actually read the red letters, you see that the one who spoke the red letters pointed backwards and forwards to the rest of the letters. I think that is very important for you to know as you read your Bible. Let's pray. God, I thank you for revealing yourself to us. The words that are simply of me today, I pray would be quickly forgotten. Anything that I said that I was mistaken at, I just pray would be quickly forgotten. But I pray that your word and your truth and what you want us to know would be remembered for a long time. I pray that you would build up our faith and help us to trust you. And I thank you that you have communicated to us. And so I pray you'd make us into a people who read your word and trust it because we trust you and submit to it because we submit to you. And thank you for not leaving us alone. 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his death on the cross for our sins. Thank you that we can be right with you, not by following all the letters perfectly, but because Jesus did on our behalf. And now we get to follow you and we get to love you forever. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.